Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast What do you love about music? To begin with everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I do a classic album dissection of The Clash's 30-year-old landmark release, London Calling. And later on, we'll review the new concept album from David Byrne and Fatboy Slim and the latest from soul singer Sharon Jones. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. song called One Time, which is the breakthrough hit for an artist named Justin Bieber, 16-year-old Justin Bieber. One of the biggest selling artists out there today with My World 2.0, the follow-up to his November 2009 EP called My World. He is the youngest male solo act to debut at number one since 1963, when an artist named Little Stevie Wonder debuted (laughs) in the same spot in the Billboard charts, Jim. There is a long tradition, obviously, of these teenage phenoms. It's interesting that Bieber was signed to his first record deal by another former teenage phenom, Usher. Usher found out about Bieber through, what else, YouTube videos that this young Stratford, Ontario artist was uploading to the Internet, liked what he heard, had a meeting with Bieber in Atlanta, signed him to a deal with L.A. Reid on the Island Def Jam label. As I said, he debuted last November with this EP, 
that immediately went to number one, spawned a number of hit singles. Now he's back with My World 2.0. You can tell they're working really fast to get this artist out there. He is already a huge hit at the Obama White House. He's appeared at the White House two more times than you and I combined, Jim, <laughs> already <laughs> in the last few months. Which is mind-boggling, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Obama girls apparently love him, and so does Michelle. Greg, the thing that I think that's interesting about this phenomenon is that it's really the first teen idol that's been 100% digital. We've had, you know, enthusiasm being spread on message boards and, and, and Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that in the past. But this guy came from the digital realm, right. would not exist without the digital realm. If those original YouTube songs of his hadn't been posted, the fire really caught there. And he could have been a superstar without having any record contract, mm-hmm. causing riots in shopping malls and all the rest that he's doing. So that's number one. Number two is at least it means the Jonas Brothers are done. Right? They were getting a little long in the tooth. Nick Jonas got his solo album out. Right, So now here is the next one. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is um, the relative innocence here in the Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, in sync Backstreet Boys heyday of teen pop in the, in the last 10 years. It was pretty dirty minded. It was There was a fine line between like the strip club lyrically and teenage romance. This guy is Donny Osmond. To be sure, he wants a girlfriend, and that's basically the theme of every (laughs) song. But he's saying it in in relatively uh, kind and gentle ways. Baby, take my open heart and all that it offers. Yes, there's no double entendres here. He even gets ludicrous to tone it down. He has ludicrous on his My World 2.0 record doing a cameo. When I was 13, I had my first love. There was nobody that compared to my baby, and nobody came between us, so could ever come above. She had me going crazy. Oh, I I was starstruck. She woke me up daily. Don't need no Starbucks. I've never heard Ludacris sound so chaste and so yeah. straightforward. Same with this artist. He basically has two modes. There's this up-tempo R&B type of vibe. He definitely wants to tap into that Justin Timberlake mode, uh, more so than, say, the Jonas Brothers, who were more of a straight-up pop rock band. Well, and interestingly, Timberlake was competing with Usher to sign the guy once, mm-hmm. once he started to take off. And soon I could see him being positioned as an adult contemporary artist once he becomes an adult, because he's singing these florid ballads, I miss you, I love you, I wish you were my girlfriend. Here's Exhibit A. You can judge for yourself. That Should Be Me from Justin Bieber on Sound Opinions. Everybody's laughing in my mind Rumors spreading about this other guy Do you do what you did when you did with me? Does he love you the way I can? Did you forget all the plans that you made with me? Cause baby should be me holding your hand there should be me making you laugh there should be me this is so sad there should be me there should be me there should be me feeling your kiss there should be me buying you gifts this is so wrong i can't go Cause you know 
That's the big newsmaker of the week, Justin Bieber, 16 years old, with the number one album in the country and a song called That Should Be Me on Sound Opinions. title track of The Clash's third album, 1979's London Calling. The zombies of death, Greg, are on the <laughs> march. The ferocity of The Clash in trying to stamp them down. Joe Strummer's not afraid. London's drowning, but he lives by the river. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. We thought it would be high time to uh, do a classic album dissection of this unbelievably great double album. From time to time, we like to step back and really take a look at a record that's considered a classic, certainly that you and I both love, and take people through it, how it was made, why it stands up. And this is certainly, probably after Exile, on Main Street by the Rolling Stones, a contender for the greatest double album in rock history. Yeah, without a doubt. It, it's certainly in the top five or ten, right? Blonde on Blonde, Dylan, mm-hmm. Exile on Main Street, The Clash is London Calling came out in December of uh, 79 in the UK and a month later in the US. So 30 years old. Indeed. And let's give a little history about how we got to that spot where The Clash made this amazing record. The band had been signed to a CBS huge record company at the dawn of the punk era. Had the Sex Pistols making waves. The Clash formed soon after. They were kind of a hybrid band. Mick Jones and Paul Simonon, the guitar player and bass player, had been playing together. But they really didn't have chemistry in terms of getting a proper lead vocalist. That's when they hired Joe Strummer, who was a little older than the other band members in The Clash. He'd been bumming around the London scene in a band called the 101ers, playing a style of music called pub rock, which was basically referencing older styles of American music, primarily rockabilly, updating it for a new audience. Punk 
was in the air, and they formed this new band called The Clash, based on Simonon's reading a newspaper one day and seeing the word Clash in numerous headlines, saying, hey, it's perfect for what we're trying to do. Talk about what's going on in England today to a new audience. The Clash sounded a big deal, but there was still a lot of skepticism about the staying power of punk rock. So when CBS signed the band, they didn't even release their debut album, the self-titled 1977 debut in the U.S. They were waiting to see, is this phenomenon really going to have any staying power? Meanwhile, people were desperate to get that record. It's an unbelievably wonderful record. I think every bit as good as the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks, or the first four Ramones albums. You couldn't even buy the U.S. copy. You had to get it on import, or you you had a much-coveted tape of it, you know, cassette tape from a friend's copy. And it stands up. Everyone I knew had it, Jim. It became the best-selling import record in history at that point. So CBS thought, hey, maybe we got something here. So they really geared up for that second record, and they hired a big-time producer, Sandy Perlman, who had worked with Blue Oyster Cult, among others, to produce. So they brought him to the States. They recorded this record in 1978 called Give Him Enough Rope. Again, not a huge commercial success. A lot of great songs on that record. Terrific record by any measure, but not the record that was going to break this band in the States. So there was a lot of pressure on The Clash with their third record to prove to its record company that they really had something here, that there was a band that was going to not only have a lot of critical credibility, but was also going to sell a lot of records. The Clash were an interesting place, too. They had this Fengali-type manager named Bernie Rhodes, who was constantly plotting behind the scenes, and there was all sorts of rumors about The Clash breaking up, you know, telling Mick Jones or Joe Strummer, hey, you know, you're the real star in this band. You really should break away from this guy. Well, Rhodes, by that time, was out of the picture. And it was actually a breath of fresh air for the band because, once again, it was just the four of them. Joe Strummer on vocals, Mick Jones on guitar and vocals, Paul Simon on bass, and Topper Heaton on drums. Topper Heaton, by the way, was kind of the secret weapon of this group. He came in later on after a series of drummers and was really one of the most musical members of the band, could play many instruments, was a terrific drummer. And so the setting was right to make a masterpiece. The band was, it was just the four of them. They got together and started doing a rehearsal sessions and demo sessions in this garage in a godforsaken spot in London called Vanilla, that they dubbed Vanilla, and uh, ended up creating the blueprint for what was to be London Calling that would come out later in that year of 1979. <laughs> They didn't have any material, Greg, when they retired to Vanilla in uh, in Pimlico in London. They just started jamming. And they started playing the songs that they grew up loving and listening to, the stuff they were obsessed with. They did Bo Diddley covers. Mm-hmm. They did Dylan covers. They 
They did whatever was, was laying around that they always wanted to play, and then they started to write some songs. Mick Jones wrote most of the music, and Joe Strummer wrote most of the lyrics, although they would complete each other's songs. At this point, it was a real Lennon and McCartney partnership. Yeah. They made each other better. It's in the gleaming corridor on the 51st floor. The money can be made if you really want some more. Executive decision made with critical precision. Matching wall and pose for a silicone nose. Cooker's life to the advertising world. Cooker's life to the party girl. Cooker's life where there isn't any. Cooker's life few short years after this, Strummer would fire Jones from the band, mm-hmm. and Heaton would fall out of the group with drug problems. They would basically fall apart. But at this point, it was four brothers against the world. The original working title of the album was The Last Testament. Yeah. And they meant that in a couple of ways. They figured, we're going to get to make one more record. We're not going to get another shot if this one doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. First one barely came out in the United States. You know, the first album came out second after the second album, which was a disappointment, give them enough rope. This is going to be it for us. But also... Punk has exploded. Where does punk go next? What is there left to do? It seems naive now, but there was this thought that, like, real revolution could be affected by a rock and roll band. (laughs) That same idealistic notion that we saw in the 60s, of course. Of course, the Clash were just a band. They were making music. They weren't going to overthrow Margaret Thatcher in the U.K. and the the ascendant forces of the right and Ronald Reagan in the U.S. They weren't going to really affect political change and bring socialized medicine and equitable work rules to the universe. They were just going to make good rock and roll and inspire people, maybe. Where did they fit in the middle of all this? Punk was devolving into what Strummer and Jones described as like the punk police. You want to put reggae in your song? You can't do that. That's yeah. not punk. There are you, rules. You, know? you want to bring R&B into your song? You can't <laughs> do that. That's not punk. In the midst of all this, these guys begin to write two albums worth of material. And they're sticking to their values. They say to CBS, we're going to put out a double record, but it's going to be the price of a single record. Mm-hmm. We won't abide by charging our fans more. How revolutionary is that in 1979? The record company, as they as they shift into the recording studio from Vanilla, the rehearsal room, they go into Wessex Sound in London. The producer is a character, and we have to explain. Guy Stevens was like <laughs> one of these guys on the fringes of the mod movement. He'd hung out with the Who and the Small Faces and that whole explosion of sound. He'd gone on to produce Mott the Hoople. He was, by all accounts, certifiably insane. His idea was, I want to get the maximum amount of emotion out of you guys as you're performing the songs, as you're recording. He didn't much care about the subtleties of sound. His favorite techniques for inspiring the group were to throw chairs in the studio (laughs) and to take a ladder and swing it around. (laughs) So The Clash is, is doing basic tracking for these songs that have come together in the rehearsal room, and this guy is throwing chairs, swinging this ladder, they're ducking him and trying to play the songs that they've just written, and something magical happened by all accounts. He only wants
going to continue our classic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash in just a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Jim and I are going to review the surprising new concept album from David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and we are conducting a classic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash on the 30th anniversary of its U.S. release. This was the third release for this English rock band, and it marked a big leap forward for them. Greg, I think one of the reasons was the recording environment. In Wessex studio that summer in 1979, it was, of course, the four members of The Clash. Joe Strummer on rhythm guitar and vocals, Mick Jones on lead guitar and vocals, Paul Simonon on bass, and Nicky Topper Heaton on drums. They brought in Guy Stevens to produce, and he was unconventional to say the least. But he was paired with a truly skilled engineer, Bill Price. Now, in between the recording, they would go out in the back and play football, soccer. It was, by all accounts, blood on the walls soccer. They were knocking each other over. They were knocking teeth out. There was, there was full-on tackling, and they loved it most of all when CBS <laughs> would come by once a week, the executives from the record company, yeah. because if you're here in the studio, you've got to play soccer with us, right? Yeah. So they were knocking the heck out of these record executives, and then they'd go in and they'd record these songs. Again, it's called The Last Testament. This is going to be it. This is going to be everything we have to say. We're going to take all the music we love. R&B, reggae, punk rock, country and western even on the fringes of things. All these heroes we have musically, we're even going to put it on the cover. 
that cover image when when I bought this record when it came out. I didn't know that mm-hmm. that was the exact lettering and the color scheme from Elvis Presley's debut album. Yep. Elvis Presley holding the guitar up in that famous black and white photo. Right. The Clash's take on it was to take the same layout and the same color scheme, but Paul Simonon on stage at the Palladium in New York destroying his bass, pounding his bass down into the ground. Right. Elvis Presley was the beginning. We are the Clash. We are going to be the end. <laughs> that was the statement of what would eventually be called London Calling. The hubris was definitely there. I mean, they definitely had a sense of historical context in this record. And the beauty of The Clash was that they didn't want to burn their elders in effigy. They adored Bo Diddley, and they respected Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. They wanted to bring it all up to date, and and it filtered into The Clash system. What was interesting about this record to me, Jim, you know, it had that sprawl in the mold of, of an exile on Main Street or a blonde on blonde. It allowed them to explore these areas of music that they had never explored before in a really profound way, and at the same time, to make it all sound like Clash music. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of things, I think, that were interesting to me about those sessions that you were talking about. Guy Stevens sort of got things going, but, you know, his shtick sort of wore out after two or three weeks. I talked to Strummer a few times about it and said, you know, after a while, when you're dodging one too many chairs it trying to all, play, yeah. and then Stevens would stop showing up because he was there for the initial inspiration. But the guy who really finished the record as the de facto producer, even though he wasn't credited that way, was Mick Jones, a superb musician, really made this a much more layered record than it might have been had Stevens been left to his own devices. So the combination of Stevens's manic expression in the studio, just the psychotic element, Bill Price's precision as an engineer, and then Jones's ability to arrange the music in these really beautiful and innovative ways made the record what it was. And then you had this great band, Strummer, an amazing lyricist, writing songs like Lost in the Supermarket. Mick Jones sings that song, and a lot of people assume that Jones wrote it. But in fact, it was Strummer writing the song for Jones. A lot of people say there are no love songs on London Calling, and that's one of its great failings. And the one love song on their Lover's Rock is kind of a misfire. I disagree with that completely. Lost in the Supermarket is a love song. It is a love song from Joe Strummer to Mick Jones saying, I have empathy for the way you grew up in this lonely apartment with your grandmother, and music was was a lifeline for you. Hearing that noise was my first ever feeling. That's how it's been all around me. Lost in the Supermarket. It was about those four guys expressing themselves in a way that they'd never been able to before because it was just the four of them alone in the studio with this engineer and this lunatic producer making the music of of a lifetime. I think you're onto something there, Greg. All four members of The Clash really were able to shine in that environment. 
But Paul Simonon in particular, yeah. he really came forward as a bassist. People think, well, you know, they were punk, they were rough, they were raw, they were ragged. Certainly, look, you look at performance footage and The Clash were all about the explosion of energy, yeah. not a lot of subtlety. However, by this point, Paul was so serious about becoming a great bass player, was obsessed with reggae, was listening to it all the time, that he learned how to play. Whether they're doing something like Rudy Can Fail, which is classic reggae... Or they're doing just an explosion of energy, uh, revolution rock. It's his bass that's driving things. I agree with you 100%. The rhythm section on this record is extraordinary. They were so versatile. Simon had really picked up his game. Heaton was a great drummer already, but he finally got to play more than just that basic punk rhythm. But they were experimenting with jazz rhythms, funk rhythms, ska, reggae, as you mentioned. The horn section comes in, and they blow up some of the songs, really expand the palette. Absolutely. You're listening to our Sound Opinions classic album dissection of The Clash's 1979 double album, London Calling. Greg, one of the elements we haven't mentioned yet is Strummer's lyricism. There's a sort of of end-of-the-century vibe, end-of-the-world vibe. Everything is falling apart that I think runs through all the lyrics. Even the, the upbeat songs, things are bad, and they're getting worse, and the only thing we have to fight it is music. That's kind of Strummer's basic philosophy, no? Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, the fact that uh, Margaret Thatcher took over as a prime minister in England that year is not lost on The Clash. They were socialists, outspokenly so, Strummer in particular. And the fact that they had just seen the world, it's important to note that they were, had seen the States for the first time, and they had gotten outside of that London scene and started to take more of a worldview about where England fit in with the rest of the world and the role that the United States was playing because they were recording for a U.S. record company Mm -hmm. now. They had things to say about the state of the world in not sort of a preachy manner in this record. It's more elliptical and metaphorical, but it's very much there, starting with that cover image of Simonon crashing that bass Mm -hmm. down on the floor. There is an anger here that's underlying everything, and at the same time, a beauty as well. Jim, you and I each picked one song that stood out for us on London Calling, and for me, it's one that combines both those elements, the beauty and the violence, Spanish bombs. You know, here they are. Talk about getting outside of their world. You know, they're singing in broken Spanish. You know, it's a classified version of Spanish that they're singing you have to in the it. chorus of this song, you, you know? Do, you do have to hand it to Joe, though, for trying to do the Castilian <laughs> TH, you know, the th- yeah. I appreciate that. Exactly. And what he's singing in the chorus of this song, I love you and goodbye, I want you but oh my aching heart. And he's basically saying we're dying here. He was talking about the Spanish Revolution of the late 30s where the Francisco Franco regime was repressing the left wing and would remain a dictatorship for subsequent decades. This was his little song of solidarity for that left wing revolution that failed and in some way maybe saying, you know, someday in my country we may need one of these to right the wrongs that have been committed. 
The chorus is wonderful. The rhythm is there. You can hear that Hayden Simonon rhythm section working overtime on this song. And then just the beauty and the wistfulness of that chorus, I think, really gets me every time. Spanish Bombs from The Clash, one of the great tracks from London Calling on Sound Opinions. Spanish songs in Spanish Bombs by The Clash from London Calling, one of Greg Cott's favorite songs from that album. I'm going to play one, too. So what epitomizes this album for me? That was the question. I had to go with Clampdown. I think that this is the finest statement in terms of being the most timeless of Strummer's worldview. In terms of there's no possibilities here for you. You're going to get this horrible job that you're going to hate. It's going to stamp out your soul. You're going to be working for the Clampdown. It starts with this verse, which is resonant of fascism. He's talking about the blue-eyed men are going to be turned into young believers. 
believers, you mm-hmm. know, like Hitler Youth. And this is what our whole society is set to do. This notion of uh, I'm going to have to put on the brown and blue. I'm going to have to put on the suit mm-hmm. and go to work. It's going to steal my soul. You start wearing the blue and brown and you're working for the clampdown. You got somebody to boss you around. It makes you feel big now. You know, they hate this. At the same time, musically, what a sophisticated song. Here is a three-minute explosion of energy, but it's got four distinct parts. It's got that whole kind of intro, which you could lop off and it wouldn't take anything away, but it's beautiful and it sets the stage for the song. You have these funky bridges. You have this killer, lock-tight rhythm in the verses as Strummer's spitting out these words. Talk about the rhythm section. This is as good, I think, as Led Zeppelin at its best. Yeah, It's like all the fat of what Led Zeppelin could do, pared down to just the absolute ferocity of Bonham's drums and uh, John Paul Jones's bass. Simonon and Heaton are that good. Brilliant musically, brilliant lyrically, my favorite track on the album, Clamped Down by The Clash on Sound Opinions.
That is Clamped Down by The Clash, my favorite track from London Calling, one of the greatest albums in rock history and a Sound Opinions classic to be sure. If you'd like to make a comment on London Calling or anything else in the world of popular music, call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and we'll put it on the air. Greg and I are going to return after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of two new albums by David Byrne and Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the title song from the new album from David Byrne and Fatboy Slim, Here Lies Love. Get this, a song cycle about Imelda Marcos and Estrella Cumpas. David Byrne, a man who makes no small plans. Obviously, since the days of the Talking Heads, he's been all over the map, the Renaissance man of rock. He has dabbled in theater, in dance music. Now he's collaborating with Fatboy Slim, a.k.a. Norman Cook, on a 22-song, 89-minute song cycle about the deposed Philippine dictator's wife, Amelda Marcos. Well, what else would you make an album about? <laughs> he spent five years working on this thing, Jim. It, it is clearly near and dear to his heart. The deluxe edition of this album comes accompanied with a 120-page hardcover book that includes lyrics and annotation. He clearly did his research. He dug deep into the life of Imelda Marcos, and it basically attempted to tell her life story in this song cycle. The reason he hired Fatboy Slim as a collaborator is because Imelda Marcos apparently had this huge fixation on 70s disco. In fact, she had a dance floor built at her mansion in the Philippines so that she could participate in dance parties. She even had a mirror ball overhead the whole nine yards. This explains the 2,000 pairs of shoes. 
Something has to. And David Byrne wanted to see what it felt like to walk in one of those pairs of shoes, Jim. Uh, he really gets into the psychology of her life in this record and attempts to tell her story through a series of vignettes, hiring female singers ranging from Sharon Jones to Tori Amos to sing each of the individual tracks. We're going to review this album in a second, but let's play a track from it. This is one with uh, British soul singer Alice Russell on lead vocals. Men Will Do Anything from the new David Byrne Fatboy Slim record, Here Lies Love, on Sound Opinions. That is Alice Russell of the UK on vocals. It's from the new concept album by David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. Greg, i got to say, I've never been much of a fan of Fatboy Slim, and it's been a long time since that Christopher Walken video, Weapon of Choice 2000. You know, <laughs> he is so last millennium. But I'm predisposed to like anything Byrne does. You know, his solo career has been richly rewarding, every bit as much so as the Talking Heads. But let us remember that he's not infallible. Talking Heads were part of one of the greatest concept album, live album movies ever with Stop Making Sense, Mm -hmm. and also one of the worst with True Stories. This is a bad idea. Imelda Marcos, even digging deep into the relationship she had with her nanny and the weird life that she would go on to lead as the wife of the dictator of the Philippines, it just doesn't seem like a very interesting story to tell and and certainly not over two long albums. And I've been parsing these lyrics and, and often I can't tell what the heck they have to do with Imelda Marcos. And the amount of, of great female talent on this record, you know, Natalie Merchant, Santi Gold, Alison Moore, Tori Amos, Martha Wainwright, on and on and on. I don't understand, though, with all these great vocalists, why they're all singing like they're in a bad high school Broadway production. <laughs> There's a show tune quality here that these great artists' voices are kind of 
subservient to a, a certain amount of Broadway schmaltz. And, and if the idea was to show the many sides of the complex character of Imelda Marcos with all these different performers giving her voice, it doesn't work. And the music kind of stinks, too. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, this thing was, it was absolute torture to sit through. It's a trash it. Well, I think the show tunes part of it is the big drawback. He is trying to meld this sort of disco theater hybrid. doesn't quite pull it off. The reason he hired Cook, as I said, Fatboy Slim, was because Imelda loved her disco, apparently. And when Norman Cook sticks to the disco stuff, there's some good moments on this record. I think the track we just played, the Alice Russell track, there's a great track on here with Sharon Jones. There's a few more. I think there's probably a disc worth of solid, up-tempo disco where if you don't care a whit about Imelda Marcos's life, you're still going to dig the music. But you're right. When it gets into the theatrical schmaltz and there is enough Broadway balladry on this record to make it really a difficult listen, the first disc in particular... When, when did David Byrne turn into Andrew Lloyd Webber? Well, you know, it's, it's this idea that he can do anything. You know, I'm going to try my hand at anything. The fact that he spent five years on this <laughs> really suggests to me that that obsessive-compulsive part of his brain, you know, went into overdrive, and maybe he should have yeah. dialed it back a listen, little bit. Listen, David, you got to get out more. Go take a walk in Central Park, will you? And frankly, Imelda Marcos is not that... A comp- compelling a figure. I mean, okay, fascinating maybe, but do we really want to know all these little nuances of her life? I'm afraid that the narrative supersedes the music so much that it just loses any kind of oomph it might have had. I like the fact that you can dance your fanny off to the disco tracks, but then when you have to pay attention to the libretto, the the story of Imelda Marcos' life, it really becomes a drag. I'm going to be more generous than you. I would say if this had been a single disc, it, it should be a burn it record. There's about half of this that I would totally dump, but about half of it, the up tempo disco stuff, works for me, so I'm going to give it a burn it. Something told me inside that your love was untrue. Something told me inside. Something told me inside. You said, girl, it's all right. I would never hurt you. You said, girl, it's all right. You said, girl, it's all right. a song called I Learned the Hard Way, the title track from the new album by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Greg, you've been a big fan. I'm a big fan. You gotta love Sharon Jones. No two ways about it. Who is this woman? 53-year-old New Yorker, born and raised in Augusta, Georgia, the real voice of the Daptone Records label, whose house band is the Dap Kings. It's this Brooklyn institution, group of musicians that got together about a decade ago, dedicated to recreating the real, soulful, gritty R&B sounds of the mid-60s to the mid-70s, playing the instruments that that music was played on, recording the, the way that those bands recorded. The Dap Kings, Sharon's backing band, probably best known for having been tapped by Amy Winehouse and Power her big hits, including Rehab. But Sharon is a a presence to be considered. You know, she may not have the hairdo that Amy Winehouse had, but this 53-year-old woman has lived 10 lives, and and you can hear that in her voice. She worked for a time as a corrections officer on Rikers Island. She drove an armored 
car, making deliveries to banks. And now she, she still lives in, in the ghetto in New York, as she said. That's the term she embraces. And she's proud to say, I think you can hear that in my voice. The buzz has been building for some time, partly because of the Winehouse connection, partly because of the great work that Daptone has done over the last decade, as I said. A lot of anticipation for this new album, I Learned the Hard Way. Let's play a track from it, and we'll come back and we'll give our thoughts. This is a song called Better Things by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings on Sound Opinions. I'm a better woman than I have been Cause I don't think about way back when It takes two to love, but only one to leave It was you who did that dirty deed I got better things to do Better things to do That's Better Things from the new album by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, I Learned the Hard Way. Fourth studio album for Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, but as you said, Jim, she's been around a lot longer than that. She's been singing backup vocals for Unsoul, Funk, and Gospel records since the 70s. Came up the hard way, so well-earned title for this record. She is a vocalist so nuanced. She can go from that lion's roar rasp to that delicate falsetto in a heartbeat and make you feel every word. She inhabits these songs. It's all original songwriting by the Dap Kings, and she lives these songs. What I particularly love about her sound is that dialogue you hear between the voice and that, and that horn section. Yeah. That is classic Stax Memphis soul right there. They're channeling that sound, but at the same time, she is living in the moment. These songs are about her and about the life that she is living right now. I love it. I mean, to my mind, this is as good an album as she's ever made. She is a huge presence live. I highly recommend that you go see Sharon Jones when she tours. She probably plays 200 dates a year. But this is the studio album that really nails it for me. Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, I Learned the Hard Way. It's a buy it all the way for me. I, I agree with you there, Greg. It is a buy it record. I've always loved Sharon Jones live on stage. You know, the records have been like, okay, souvenirs before mm-hmm. uh, of the live show. This is this is a beginning to end great album. It really is the first time she's come into her own in the studio. Now, you have to kind of get over that retro element. We were hard on Amy Winehouse when that record came out, even before she self-destructed and became a celebrity kind of a parody of herself because it it felt sterile. It felt like, you know, we're going to like go into the time machine, the Wayback Machine. You don't get that sense from Sharon Jones. Mm-hmm. They are they are playing in a certain style that is based on the music of 40 or 50 years ago and yet she is is giving it to you straight 
in the moment, immediate. It's about life today. It's not about looking backwards. Absolutely enthusiastic. Double buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an interview and a live performance with the Baltimore-based co-ed duo Beach House. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, who is a believer, and Jason Saldana, whose favorite teen idol remains Michael Jackson. Our executive producer is Tori Southside Malatia, and he goes all the way back to Bobby Sherman. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hey. How you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. Hey. How you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get New back messages. This is Wayne from Boulder, Colorado. I just listened to the Synth Pop show. Uh, that was a great one. Thank you. First of all, I was happy to hear that Pandora's projections are positive again. It feels good to have contributed to their success in some small way, just because I gave them some of my cash to uh, uh, to pay for their ad-free version. I really love it. But uh, also, the, the Synth Pop segment was really great. Thanks for the in-depth story there. Um, I was glad to hear you mention that Van Halen was one of those testosterone-driven bands that really opposed the idea at the time of the synthetically produced sound. Just I've heard them also brag about exactly that, that they never really bought into that whole genre. But at being a fan, when I listen back to 5150 from, from 1986, tracks like Dreams and Love Walks In, there they are, relying heavily on that, that exact same keyboard, just like many of the other bands at the time. So uh, just a quick observation. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hi, this is Alan in Chicago, and I love your show. I have a minor criticism. Neither one of you, although you live in Chicago and you work in Chicago and your show is broadcast from Chicago, neither one of you pronounced this city's name correctly, especially you, Jim. You really mispronounce it. It's Chicago, not Chicago. Thanks. Bye. Hi, my name is Terry Kaufman. I listen to your show because I often hear music that I didn't know about, good music that I didn't know about, and I just listen to the show about the Vivian girl, 
And I can't imagine why you put them on your show. They are horrible. Their vocals are thin and off-key most of the time. Uh, there's nothing intricate about their, the music or their arrangements. I, I don't understand. I, I suppose maybe a 20-year-old might like them, but anybody who actually knows music or likes music wouldn't possibly like them. And I can't imagine how they got on your show. Okay, that's all I have to say. Thanks. Bye. Hello there, Greg and Jim. This is Ken Lawrence from Colonia, New Jersey, a listener on 90.7 WFUV. And, yes, it's not a complaint. It's a thank you. You turned me on to a very, very cool new group today with your interview with the Vivian Girls. Just got off of the Internet after doing a word search to find their website, and I just dispatched an email, and as I said to them, with so much of today's so-called post-punk designed to be feel-like-crap music, although I didn't say crap, it's nice to know that there's music that's just plain good out there. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.